0: Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Driving to the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, and yes, back from another hiatus of a couple of weeks here. Uh, So I know I had said back in December uh, after my initial hiatus that I was going to try to get back uh, to doing this on a consistent basis. I mean, I had done. I mean, I, I believe I had missed maybe like one episode in the year and a half before that time. Uh, you know, recording the show every week is something I enjoy doing. Uh, I also enjoy doing it for you guys, for the listeners. I'm, I'm very grateful for, especially for those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time. And uh, and, and yeah, I want to produce consistent content for you. So uh, so I want to explain what happened in this situation uh, since I went the last couple weeks without recording an episode. Uh, what happened was that uh, I went out of town to be with a family member who had a terminal illness who has since passed away. And... You know, even then had been planning to uh to record an episode before I departed, just to schedule the post after I left. I unfortunately left that to kind of the last minute. Things came up before I had to travel, you know, as they often do for all of us. And and then when it came to, to last week's episode, just being in the midst of the situation, I just could not find it within myself to or even just the level of focus to sit down uh and record an episode. So I'm I'm not talking I'm not explaining the situation out of a desire, you know, to receive sympathy or condolences or or attention, I'll put it that way. Uh I just want to be transparent about what's going on because again uh you know I, I made that commitment to to record the show on a regular basis, and it's just important to me um that if I end up not doing that uh that you know again that I'm transparent as to why that is so yeah so that's uh' that's the current situation uh plenty on getting back to a regular schedule here uh you know regardless of how kind of unpleasant and uh and futile the the situation for the rest of the season with the Pistons appears there's not really. It uh, doesn't feel like really a ton to look forward to at this stage. I mean, there, there have been some bright spots of late, but in terms of, you know, we're, we're headed toward like what was a situation that I really did not want to be in again. As I've said many times, I did not want to find myself for the third straight season in a situation in which, like, I'm just rooting for the Pistons to lose, like, and just getting stressed out. Are the Pistons going to be able to lose down the stretch so we can get that good draft position? That was a situation I was not hoping for at all. And, you know, needless to say, the Pistons are going to be in that situation in which they want to lose as much as possible. There is absolutely no benefit. Uh, you know, the cost-benefit equation in terms of winning games at this point is is really not ideal. The lottery is a lottery, but the idea is to get yourself the best possible odds. I think we'll see the Pistons do some uh, some strategic tanking in terms of sitting players, uh, like they did the last two seasons, and then following the end of the season. I mean, we've got a significant wait for the draft lottery, and then another significant wait after that for the draft. So, uh, I found. Last season, that wait for the draft lottery was, you know, was the worst, you know, after the Pistons, after we knew where the Pistons were going to fall, then there was at least kind of something to tide us over. Even if after that, it was another month until the draft. Uh, Like if I remember correctly, it's like six weeks, I think between the end of the season and the draft lottery, end of the regular season and the draft lottery. So in any case, uh, let's go and move on to what's happening with the Pistons right now. And uh, of course, the foremost thing is... Marvin Bagley playing really well. No, I'm just joking. The foremost thing is this: the Sadiq Bay james Wiseman trade. So just to revisit the exact terms of it, they, this was uh, Kevin Knox and Sadiq Bay were sent off to the Golden State Warriors. Uh, the Warriors rerouted Sadiq Bay to the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks sent four second round draft picks to the Warriors. The Warriors sent Kevin Knox and I believe two of those seconds to Atlanta to bring back Gary Payton II. Uh, Who it was found had a core muscle issue that had not been reported, but had the capacity to keep him out for a significant period. The Warriors decided to go through the trade uh, and it happens. And Wiseman's been with the Pistons for four games at this stage. I'm recording this semi-usual day, which is uh, a Tuesday night, the night before it posts, post on Wednesday mornings, of course. So uh, let's break this one down. So let's start with Sadiq Bey. So. Obviously, kind of a what-could-have-been story. I think all of us were surprised by this trade. Um, you know, we, we knew that Sadiq Bey was on the trade block. Of course, just being on the trade block, almost every player is, is available in trade talks You know, at any given time. I mean, teams are always willing to take calls. But it seemed like even though Sadiq had been moved to the bench, he seemed like kind of a, a piece that the front office saw as kind of you know core personnel, so to speak. And we found some things out later on after the trade itself. Uh, for example, you know, we we learned from James Edwards wrote an article about this, that that Sadiq really and, and Dwayne Casey also came out and, and said something not directly about Sadiq, but just in general, uh, that that Sadiq had kind of been maybe going rogue a little bit, had not been like that, that the organization had wanted him to be like, it wanted him to be a, you know, three point shooter who maybe does a little bit of stuff off the dribble, but but mostly just a perimeter shooter that for that to be his core capacity and that Bay really had not necessarily wanted that to be the case. It had wanted to uh, to do much more to expand his game, to have a bigger role. And, and Dwayne Casey said it pretty well. I don't have the exact quote in front of me right now, but that's, you know, any of these guys who come into the league, I mean, they all, uh, you know, are, are, are thinking big. They're not necessarily thinking, well, here's what I'm good at, and, and I just want to uh, go out there and play this specific role. I mean, all of them are thinking big, and that, that can be that, that can be a complication. Uh, on a young team with all these players coming in and thinking uh, that, you know, that they want to be a star and the vast majority of players are not going to be stars. Like the vast, vast majority of players are going to be role players. And and a significant percentage of those role players are going to be pretty expendable, you know, kind of bottom of the rotation role players. So uh, it seems Sadiq may have been one of those players who was just really unwilling to, how do I put this? Uh, Put it this way. He, He stepped outside the, apparently was not, willing to content himself with the role that the team desired for him. Now, if we go back to last season, like the beginning of uh, the first quarter of last season, when it was all just ISO offense and whatnot, and, uh, you know, everything fell apart for him and everything was terrible and he looked completely agitated <laughs> and it just fell apart on both ends. I think that was the coaching staff experimenting. I don't think that was Sadiq just going rogue. Uh, this season, it was a little bit weird because, uh he just took a lot of bad shots. He forced a lot of bad offense. Like uh, th- these instances when he would drive in, and it's like there is no absolutely and, and utterly no way you're going to make this shot. Like attack the basket, defenders around you, you score from below the rim, you're not going to blow up at him. He attempts to lay up anyway, and it gets swatted, or it just goes completely wild. Uh, these these pull-up twos at which he was not good, these turnaround post jumpers at which he was not good. And often this was like his best games were generally – when he was just willing to accept this catch and shoot role and not be trying to think about, oh, I'm going to get the ball and create off the dribble. It's like catch the ball, shoot the ball. And, and what I always wanted is Sadiq's next frontier was for him to be able to shoot motion threes. Instead, we got, I want to attack off the dribble, Sadiq. And I think that he can be a kind of three plus some creation and in certain circumstances sort of player. I I have never believed in Sadiq Bey as as a player who's just going to be able to create a lot of offense effectively it's never going to be worth giving him that role he had some he's had some games in which he's willing to, he's, he's been able to do so but in general you give Bey the ball uh, as a creator he's not going to do a great job at it and also he's he's never really going to take advantage of the, of whatever gravity he draws in the way to the basket he gets absolutely tunnel visioned on scoring when he decides he's going to attack the rim uh, and I'm sure many of you guys you know, all of us will think back to that recent instance. I don't remember the game it was against, but uh, it was it was on a critical possession. Bay had uh, had Jalen Duran wide open under the basket, and he went for a, a bad layup anyway. He just didn't even think to pass the ball. So, if you have a young player who's just not willing to stay, who's not willing to operate within the role that's laid out for him, that's a problem. Of course, it's not only a problem on the court, which is less of an issue for a team that's a not trying to win and b you're at the point of the season when you know, the season is, is lost in terms of outcomes. You know, you're not going to make the plan at this stage. Um, uh, You know, so it's not a huge problem on the court in that capacity, but it's obviously a problem for the coaching staff who want to play the game a certain way, who want to get, uh, you know, the young players and everybody involved in a certain way, who want to run a system. It's also just a problem for the future if you have a player who's not willing to do that. Mike, you compare him to, I don't know, Isaiah Stewart, who's like on the far end of the spectrum in terms of I am a team player, but I doubt the guy does anything at all that the coaching staff uh, does not want him to do. He just uh, he wants to play his role. Uh, and that's the role that's 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 laid down to him. And you want all of your players to I mean, you're not telling these players not to dream, but you got to do what to, you got. You got to do what's asked of you on the court. And again, if we've, we've had issue. we've had other recent examples before the rebuild of Pistons players who are just absolutely not willing to stand in their lane. And that's a problem for any player. It's just a bad sign for a young player, too. Uh, my impression of Bay and the impression that we were always given was of a kind of wiser than his years sort of player who could be relied upon, relied upon to make the right decision in the majority of cases and played very selflessly. And I think that's what he was as a rookie. And that for most of last season, that's what he was. Uh, I'm not sure what changed this season. Uh, he definitely, like we had that first quarter of the 2021, 2022 season in which it was just all ISO offense and everything went horrible. And the piston, you know, the, the coaching staff seemed to just give up on it halfway through December. And and Sadiq changed to a shot profile that was much more fitting for him, which was just threes and initiating offense largely from within the arc and under 14, you know, under advantageous circumstances. And uh, yeah, this season uh, that seemed to be just different, Uh, just that the role that he was playing was different. It was often very just dissonant in terms of the overall, you know, how he operated within the overall offense, how he operated with regard to uh, his strengths, his main strength is three point shooting. And also his defense completely disappeared. Uh, I'm still completely unclear as to what happened on that. He was like a sort of maybe a little bit below average defender as a rookie. He was, I would say, pretty average last season. Uh, you know, dependable enough, respectable enough, serviceable, put it that way. This season, he was absolutely and utterly horrible, like completely just dreadful. I have absolutely no idea, no idea what happened. Was this a shift in his attitude? Was he was just caring much more about offense and defense was not just not on his list of priorities? I mean, who knows, you know, things can go wrong with young players in terms of attitude. Uh, maybe I'm just trying to, I mean, I try never to do this, obviously, you know, am I trying to make the, the evidence fit the circumstances? Who knows? I mean, is it, is it possible that just um, he went wrong in terms of his attitude this year? Uh, I, I I don't know. It, it seems like it fits, you know, if, if it's just a player who decided that he just wanted to focus more on his offense and more on trying to be the offensive player that he wanted to be and, and. He just devalue defense as a result. It's possible. I doubt we'll ever know for sure. Uh, I don't know what else could possibly have happened because you don't go from being kind of like a decent defender to being an absolute sieve and then just a horrible liability for no reason. But we don't know. I, mean, I I've seen it speculated that he just you know put on too much uh, put on too much muscle mass and just wasn't quick enough anymore. But that doesn't account for just the plethora of of mistakes he made. So as far as you know, what could have been with Bay? And what could have been is not obviously all that important because it didn't happen. But, oh, yeah, one thing I missed also, contract demands. You know, it came out uh, through, I believe it was Jonathan Gibbon. who's a reliable enough source that uh, Sadiq was asking for, uh, I think, something in the realm of like DeAndre Hunter money, which would have been like, uh, you know, $80 million over four years, and that he wanted that extension this summer. The Pistons would not have given him that extension this summer because unless he had just... Dramatically turn things around in the final quarter of the season. It's like, okay, well, you just had your third season. It was worse than your second season. You, uh, you know, are not really operating within the role that we wanted for you. You know, the, the role that we wanted you to play. Your defense went to absolute, just it became absolutely horrible. And in general, you know, though you did make some strides in terms of the ability, your ability to attack off the dribble. You still weren't run, run all that good in that. And in all things considered, you regressed in terms of your effectiveness. You were a significantly worse player than you had been in your sophomore season. We have issues with your attitude at this point. Um, and, and just you don't you don't couple those two things together with, you know, we have issues with your ability to follow direction and you regress significantly. Okay, this is not a player to whom you necessarily give $80 million. So also a factor. So I would imagine it was those two together um, that, that led them to move on from Sadiq. And apparently his trade value was not particularly high. Uh, so it is said, and just based on the return also. Uh, and we'll talk about Wiseman in a little bit, of course. So what could have been with Sadiq? Uh, well, I mean, if you had just taken the player he wasn't in, in, the, in the last three quarters of his sophomore season, and just you know maintain that level of defense, uh, and just maintained him doing what he was good at, uh, maybe added some a little bit to his toolbox in terms of ability to attack closeouts and ability to shoot motion threes, and I think there you've got maybe not the starter we you know that, that a lot of us hoped he was you know that uh, hoped that he would be you know a starter on a contender. But at the very least, a solid bench player, uh, you know, who you can plug into the starting lineup in, in certain circumstances. And I mean, maybe he would have been that starter. Who knows? Uh, so it sucks that that didn't happen. I mean, I think all he really had to do was just continue his trajectory from those final three quarters of season two. Um, I just made it sound like a TV show from the final three quarters of his second season. Um, yeah, you know, Sadiq Bay reality TV. You <laughs> just got kicked out of the house, voted off the island, whatever you want to call it. So uh, it's a shame that the Pistons didn't get that, but uh, if if a lot of this, as was said, just boiled down to his attitude uh, and and just, just his mental outlook, then, you know, that's, that's just the way the dominoes fall sometimes, but it's definitely disappointing given the player we saw in in his first two seasons. I'd say I've, I have been often frustrated with Bay in the current season, but I'm, I'm disappointed that it ended this way. And I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think: is is there any place for the organization as blaming this? I mean, if it's a player who's just unwilling to 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 follow the plan, so to speak. And I, I think that for all of Dwayne Casey's faults, he, I mean, he's he's a you know he's solid enough as a developmental coach. Uh, he is basically liked by everyone. Um, seems to be a very non-controversial guy who, who just works very well with young players, and none of them have anything but good things to say about him. And I imagine probably Sadiq Bay would have nothing but good things to say about him. He just perhaps uh, he just perhaps didn't listen to the guy. So. Uh, Whatever the case, disappointing end to Sadiq's tenure in Detroit. Uh, And now, uh, yeah, we got 50% of the core four gone. Uh, You remember that core four that we recalled it from 2020. Of course, uh, Saban Lee being the other departed member of that. Uh, In any case, uh, let's move on to the guy who replaced him. Uh, That is James Wiseman from the Golden State Warriors. Of course, the second overall pick in the 2022 draft. Uh, About two forty, seven foot six wingspan. You know, excellent length. uh, Just excellent size overall. Good mobility, excellent athleticism. Uh, yeah, let's just, let's just go over his, his strengths and weaknesses here. So in terms of coming into the league, uh, this is what... So no, let me actually preface that. Wiseman played a, a very, very short time in the NCAA. Uh, he only played three games for Memphis before he was ultimately suspended by the NCAA after an investigation into basically incentives given to him. Uh, or money given to him uh, for certain things uh, by you know by the program, and uh, he was suspended, I believe, for twelve games. He just decided to leave the program overall. The guy almost undoubtedly knew that he was going to be a you know a, a top five pick in the in the NBA draft, regardless. Uh, but basically, what this meant is that teams were going into into the draft process with very very little knowledge of Wiseman, as you know, just very very little data on him. You had data from high school, but high school, I mean, these guys who come in and are going to be first round draft picks in the, in the NBA, especially the guys who are going to be like top 10 draft picks, um, these were like deities amongst boys in high school. Like, you know, even on the AAU level, I mean, anybody who is good enough to get into the NBA is going to be like, even, even the guys who are good enough to be like just, just blue chip prospects in the NCAA are going to be like titans in, in high school basketball. And there are plenty of these five-star prospects who do not go on to have careers in the NBA. So all we have is three games at Memphis. And, and of course, that's nowhere near enough to, you know, there's just a very, a big shortfall of data there. He was going to be a top five pick regardless. The Warriors took a chance on him uh, because, you know, he fit a need for them. And these were the Warriors who had been to what, like um, five straight finals. Yeah. T- 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then Durant left. Thompson uh, tore his ACL during those finals. Uh, Curry came in and it's like, oh, okay, you know, Curry's going to come in and have like a season for the ages. Uh, He got injured, missed the vast majority of the season. And the thoughts going into that were, okay, well, you know, screw Golden State. They just had this amazing uh, string of success. And then they get to, you know, basically, not by choice, but they basically tank a season and get a super high draft pick and then get to come, you know, and just recharge on that and come back and, okay, well, now they're, you know, the rich get even richer, even though they have lost Durant. So, uh, Clay Thompson tore his Achilles on draft day and clearly the Warriors had decided on Wiseman already. And I mean, the thing is, if you're a team that's that good, you can absolutely draft based on need rather than best player available. I mean, this, the, the Warriors were ostensibly, you have Thompson back, uh, going to be a good team the next season. Uh, you had D'Angelo Russell. I can't believe, I can't remember if they had traded, uh, for Wiggins at that point, though. I believe that they had, um, wait, no, 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 no. They said, actually, no, that that's not the case. Uh, they traded D'Angelo Russell, and I believe Wiggins was traded. Eh, whatever the case. This was going to be a good team, you know, the following season with Curry and with Thompson back. So they could absolutely afford to draft based on need. Ultimately, they did not, they did not get Thompson back because he tore his Achilles. Whatever the case, this is just a, a discussion. I'm just basically expanding on why the Warriors could draft based on fit uh, rather than based on need at number two, which is a luxury that the vast vast majority of teams picking in the top 5 of the draft just cannot afford. So, I mean they had what they needed in terms of uh, you know out on the out on the perimeter. You've got Draymond Green of course uh operating at you know at power forward and uh you know and and the Warriors are a meta bending team, you know, if you have Curry and Thompson and and yes, I actually just went and checked Wiggins was on the team. Uh he was he was traded uh in the middle of the 2019 uh 2019-2020 season. So, and of course, at that point, he really wasn't all that great, but, you know, as the Warriors just having Curry and Thompson and Green and then some other, you know, decent players, and, you know, they were going to be a good team. Uh, you can operate with three shooters if you're that team. Of course, the vast majority of teams cannot. Whatever the case, you bring in Wiseman, uh, and hopefully you have like an elite big man in the middle, and, and that just makes your team even better. Because to, to this point, you know, the Warriors had basically just phoned it in on center for the last, uh, for the previous three seasons. Because you just don't, you know, you have that much power on the perimeter. You can just get like a traditional center who really doesn't need to do anything but play garbage man and, and defend the rim a bit. Especially because you got Draymond to help him on defense. Uh, catch lobs, whatever, finish. Basic traditional center things. So that made sense for them. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a lot of talk that, hey, you know, if if Klay uh, Thompson had torn his Achilles, you know, like three days earlier, would they still have drafted James Wiseman? My personal opinion is they probably would have drafted LaMelo Ball in that situation. I think it was just absolutely terrible timing. But also, again, they did not know that Wiseman would come in and struggle as he did, then get injured. And he just uh, did the did the situation in which he he was in account for how poorly he played in Golden State. Well, he didn't play much at Golden State, obviously. Uh, but yeah, let's, just, let's go into why it didn't work out for James Wiseman in Golden State. So... You can say certain things unambiguously about his performance in his rookie season where he did only play 40 games, uh, 40 games out of a 72-game season. Uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time injured, especially toward the end of the season, and um, did not play well. He was not good on defense. He was not good on offense. It's like, okay, whatever. A rookie big man. Uh, missed his entire second season uh, due to a knee injury. Okay, comes in this season. Plays 25 games, not many minutes, and in a system that absolutely does not suit him. I mean, the the Warriors work through their perimeter players. Uh, They work through a a very active motion offense. They they have a very unique offense that's made possible by the presence of Green, Thompson, and Curry. It's not really likely to make much use of a scoring big man. And, you know, in in saying that, yeah, you go back to wondering, you know, was he really the best pick in any situation? You know, would they have been better off just drafting, I don't know, the other good center in that top 10, uh, the other highly touted center, whatever. It was, uh, was a Kong Wu. Um, maybe they looked at him and just said, no, we can't use a second overall pick on him. I don't know, whatever. But yeah, he came into this, uh, this season situation and just had trouble finding his way in trouble finding value. It's not that he played well because he didn't. Um, but golden state was definitely just not a good environment in which, you know, for him to grow and find his best self and everybody on the team who has spoken up has more or less said that, you know, that we really like James. We think he's got a bright future in the league. This just wasn't, you know, we wish him the best. This just probably wasn't the, the, the right situation for him. And it doesn't have to I don't think this is lip service because players and coaches can just say nothing. I mean they don't really need to say anything. And this has been kind of a I mean, this is this has been the universal response from everybody on the Warriors who've spoken up. All right, so let's talk strengths and weaknesses. But first, a quick word from the show sponsor. NBA fans, it's time to bring a hoops action to the palm of your hand with Drafting Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 and win $200 in bonus bets instantly. Plus, for a limited time, all new and existing customers get a no-sweat same-game parlay every day. Go to the Drafting Sportsbook app today, opt in, and place the same-game parlay in any NBA game, and if it doesn't hit, you get a bonus bet back. For example, you can bet on any number of the Pistons' upcoming games. Download the app now and sign up with code TBPN. New customers can bet $5 in the NBA and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Only at Drafting Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA with code TBPN. And a major eligibility restriction supplies. See so show notes for details. All right. So uh, James Wiseman's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, actually, for the second time for me, because I recorded for about 15 minutes after I'd pressed the pause button without restarting the recording. So uh, way to go, me. Okay. So uh, first and foremost, not necessarily foremost, but first, uh, his physical strengths, you know, beyond just being like actually strong, whatever. Uh, excellent athleticism, <clears throat> very mobile. Uh can absolutely play above the rim. Uh, just uh, gets around very well, moves very well. Whatever. I'm just basically saying good mobility. He's got excellent athleticism for a center. Uh, he's definitely in the upper ranks uh, in terms of that capacity. Uh, excellent size, seven foot, like a, a fantastic seven foot six wingspan, and uh, strong interior score. Uh, just in terms of his ability to create, who knows? But to get on the ball around the basket, and he's likely be going to be able to finish at a high percentage. Can catch lobs. Uh, can can play a strong presence on the pick and roll. Uh, just in, again, in terms of his his ability to get the ball, which he can do either above the rim or below it. That that length is is helpful. His his ability to catch the ball is decent enough. Uh, you know, he's he's got decent hands. He's got some potential as a floor spacer, uh, both from mid range uh, and from the three point line. And uh, on defense, he's got good potential just in terms of his physical assets. Uh, you know, in, in terms of his IQ, you know, we'll find that out, but. Uh, he's got the the length to really just do a lot of disruption in the interior, uh, the length to uh, contest shots well uh, to block shots, and the mobility to position himself in the right place. And you know also the leaping ability to uh, to come in from the weak side and swat shots. So in terms of his weaknesses, I mean, James Wiseman is still very, very raw. This is a player who is who has played a, a total of only sixty four games in the NBA at uh, you know he's averaged only about eighteen and a half minutes per game. Again, he played 39 games in his rookie season, then got injured, uh, and then uh, you know missed his entire second season. And then this season with the Warriors, had, had just gotten very inconsistent minutes. So yeah, he averaged 12 and a half uh, minutes per game with the Warriors this season in 21 games. So uh, the real questions, I mean, I would say his questions are about skill development and IQ, but that's the case with like literally every player. So I'd, I'd say the big question mark for James Wiseman is just in terms of his IQ and decision making on both ends. Like we've uh we've seen that already in a short time with the business. Like on offense just in terms of operating within the flow of the offense, being in the right place, you know, being in the right place to cause disruption, being in the right to, you know to just cause disruption for the defense, being in the right place to receive a pass, you know, just being being in the right place just in, in general for his teammates and, and what is required of him. Like I don't remember what game this was, but in one of them he spent the first half, basically the entire first half of the game posting up. And it's like, dude, that's not helpful. <clears throat> I mean, number one, post offense. I mean, well, James Wiseman would be one of these rare players who is actually worth giving the giving the ball to in the post on high volume. I know I've said it before on this uh, on this podcast quite a few quite a few times, but it is very very extremely difficult to be to be worthwhile on on volume post offense in the NBA, both because it's just it's two point offense uh, that it's self created two point offense against very difficult NBA defense. So I mean, it, it's hard to hit that efficiency threshold. Uh, and not only that, it's ball stopping defense, excuse me, ball stopping offense, which means that uh, you're not moving the ball around to, to generate a high percentage opportunity, whether that be, you know, an easy finish under the basket, uh, you know, an open lane into the basket, um, you know, for somebody penetrating from the perimeter uh, or an open three. So you got to be really darn good from the post in order to make that worth by one volume. Is James Wiseman that good? I mean, we hope so, probably not. Uh, whatever the case, if you're just posting up on every possession, you're not, I mean, you're not gonna. You're just. You're not moving around and actually helping and actually helping the offense. Uh, you're just basically begging somebody for an outlet, to, you know, for um, you know to pass the ball to you and whatever. It was just annoying to watch. Was did Dwayne Casey tell him to go do it? Did Dwayne Casey just go out there and say, "Do your thing"? Who knows? I doubt that James Wiseman was just going out there and hijacking the offense. Uh, and and he showed some improvement over the recent, you know, in recent games. But that rem- you know, in recent games, he's only been with the Pistons before games. But that remains a work in progress. On defense, he has been a mess. He's been a complete disaster in, in terms of defending the rim, uh, both in terms of his actual rim defenses and being in position. So, <clears throat> excuse me. He's got strong, as I said, strong defensive potential. It's 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 the IQ that's going to come into it. You know that that's really going to be uh that, that's really going to be the the deciding factor on defense. And right now he is very raw. And I don't think it's a matter of system at all. He just often doesn't know where to be and what to do at the NBA level. And that's a skill that some players don't develop. For example, Marvin Bagley still has not developed it. So uh, he's just, yeah, I'll just come back to this. He's very raw. Uh, he didn't really get much time to develop in, in Golden State and Golden State was not the right place for him to develop. I mean, that that's been, that's been pretty much a constant, a constant theme again, from what, what was said uh, by people within the organization. Uh, it was not really a place where he was able to get consistent minutes. Again, it's not only a question of minutes. I mean, he he spent a lot of his time injured, but even when he was healthy, um, you know, his, his first season he played, and again, he wasn't good, but he played on this, this sort of dysfunctional Golden State roster where basically all the scorers, you know, they had lost Durant and their two other best scorers, Curry and Thompson were both outs. You had Draymond, who is a horrible minus on offense if he's not surrounded by stars um, because he can't score himself and he plays at a perimeter position and, and cannot shoot. And he was just terrible in 2019, 2020 for those reasons. And uh, he was just playing and also just a Warriors team in general that just had to reinvent itself for the season. Uh, He just he just hasn't had much time in the NBA uh, to develop and refine his game. So he just remains very raw. And it's that decision making, like shooting on offense. Sure, that would be a big thing Uh, in order to become like a genuinely good player. I think he's going to have to have that shot. Um, But it's decision making on both ends, being in the right place and knowing what to do and playing to his strengths on offense just having that defensive acumen and positioning himself properly and using his assets properly and just being able to uh make the right reads and decisions at the NBA level. Uh that's that's going to decide it for him on defense. And I think honestly we're gonna find on defense that either, you know, he's he's able to do it pretty well or that he's absolutely terrible. And uh, I don't think James Wisen is going to is likely to be an in between player in general. When it comes to that just that swing factor on the decision making, I think uh, I think Wiseman will ultimately end up to be like an effective doesn't need to be a star but like an effective NBA player you know the, the, you know a pretty good you know decent center. Just, excuse me. it's just a pretty good I know I keep putting it that way. I'm sorry. I'm recording this for the second time. And I feel like I did it a good I did a good job the first time, but I wasn't actually recording it. Uh because like a dummy I forgot to press the play button again before I kept talking. I think he will either be an effective NBA player, you know, in, in, in a pretty good big, or that, you know, we'll find that he does have the capacity to, that it's just a question of developing uh, that, that awareness, developing that decision-making, or we'll find out that he just doesn't have it and he's going to flunk out. So uh, Wiseman altogether, uh, very much a lottery ticket, um, one that's could, uh, that, that could pay off, I think could pay off well, uh, or could just amounts to nothing, and I don't think there's going to be much in between and sure that's the kind of chance you you know you take as a rebuilding team it's one of the business i've taken quite a few times already <clears throat> and yeah we'll see again not super satisfied with the segment uh i don't feel like i really did it quite as well the second time but i hope you enjoyed listening to it so uh considerations uh number one uh wiseman and bagley both being on the team so this is just kind of like a funny thing which is that wiseman and bagley are both you know kind of if they can get their shit together pardon the language but uh you know, if, if they can get it together, players, uh, if they can get it together, bigs uh, who were drafted second overall two years apart, uh, who both can't really shoot at this point, uh, who both struggle on defense, and who both find most of their effectiveness just scoring from the interior. So uh, the trade felt a little bit weird for me, given that you already have a player like that in Bagley on the roster. And uh, Bagley, who's Almost certain to be with the team next season, unless he's used a salary filler in a trade. Uh, he's got two more seasons at about $12.5 million, and $12.5 million is $12.5 million, and Bagley has negative trade value at this point. So, you know, he's sticking around. I mean, no team's just going to, is likely to just take him on. I mean, it's a negative value contract at this point, whether it's a team that, that has open cap space uh, or a team that is going to have to, you know, use cap space on him regardless and, and, and pay him a salary. So uh, the two of them, there's a lot of overlap there, and it would be pretty hard to play the two of them together. I mean, sure. I mean, just, yeah, there's overlap. The fit is very poor. And sure, the Pistons are a team that is not going to win many games the remainder of the season, nor should they. However, you still want these uh, these players to be developing in something approaching a fundamentally sound offense, like with proper spacing, for example. and. There's also the question of just development for the two of them. I mean, these are these are players who are both just trying to to find themselves in the you know at the NBA level, trying to find the team. Basically, the Pistons are of course trying to develop them into good NBA players. You put them both on the floor at the same time. I mean, they play the same way. So let's say. You know, one of them learns to shoot, which is going to be necessary, I think, for both of them, certainly for Bagley, who at this point, I think is extremely unlikely to get to basically shooting is just going to be necessary alongside becoming a non-horrible defender in order for him to be a viable postseason player of any stripe. Right now, he is good for, I mean, he he's a fairly strong interior score and, you know, he's good for, you know, putting up a decent number of points, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes a good number of points, you know, maybe against OK or, or good teams or actually against bad teams. Um, but he's got basically no utility beyond that. You know, can't space the floor, can't really play off the ball that well. You know, aside from aside from finishing, and, and certainly can't play defense. And you know, his best position for you know for scoring in the interior is center, but he can't play defense at center, uh, and he's, and he still can't shoot. And that shooting is going to be absolutely essential. And it's something that I was really hoping to see uh, him improve upon over the off season. You know, in the off season, and it's a skill that just just didn't happen. Needless to say, he's, he's still a pretty darn bad shooter. So unless he miraculously gets it together as a shooter, which again, is just going to be a necessity for him. You can't really play he and Wiseman together. Uh, even if one of them gets together, gets it gets together as a shooter. Again, you're basically just asking one of them to space the floor while the other one finishes in the interior, you know, creates offense in the interior, uh, plays uh, plays role man. And there's just so much overlap there. So you have a tough time playing the two of them together, not only for the two of them, but for the players around them as well. If, if neither of them can shoot. Because again, that just makes life much more difficult for for every for the other perimeter players on the floor, and it makes it much more difficult to run like a, a decent offense. And I know you can look, you can say, oh well, look at Cleveland; they run Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Uh, okay, well, uh, Jared Allen's an all star. Uh, Evan Mobley is is really very much a, a very strong up and coming player. They're, they're very strong on defense to both of them, which certainly isn't true of, of Wiseman and Bagley. Maybe Wiseman will get there. I doubt Bagley ever will. And also it's like, uh, well, on top of that, you have like two absolutely like elite creators at the guard positions. And that helps quite a bit. So uh, just, you know, both of their two bigs are, are just better players. And also they, they've got like two elite creators. I mean, if you have like guys, you can multiple guys in the lineup who you can give the ball to and ask to score and create for teammates on an elite level. And then that, that helps to, you know, to pave over certain weaknesses. Again, the Cavaliers just get a lot back on the defensive end from the two of them. Uh, So yeah. So that's a tough thing. You know, how do you, how do you play both of them? How do you develop both of them and, and how do you play them together in, in, in a way that's, that's productive for the team and productive for, for Wiseman and Bagley themselves. And then you bring Duran into the equation uh, because you can't play either of them with Duran either. I mean, Duran doesn't really have the same sort of overlap. I think he'll, uh, he just will have, will, will be a stronger defensive player. Uh, he's, he's unlikely to be one, I think, who's really going to be uh, creating much offense uh you know, I, I think you know we we see that uh, that Marvin can can do a decent job of that. I think Wiseman will do a decent job of that, not on high volume, but Durant, I think is just likely to be a finisher. Um, you know, who I, I think will be probably decent and as an interior passer as well. Um, but just going to be hopefully a strong finisher who plays very strong defense on the other you know, who plays strong defense, very strong defense as well. I think that strong finisher plus, you know, potential. If, if, if we're talking, you know, if, if you buy into the idea and I do, that's that a lot of his struggles on defense right now are just uh, adjustment to the NBA and, and just need to develop in that capacity. Uh, then that, that's, that's a good player, a guy who, who can finish at a high percentage, can catch lobs, play well on the pick and roll and play elite defense on the other end, uh, and hopefully do some passing as well. Um, but you can't play Wiseman or Bagley next to him either. Uh, because Durin too is, I, I don't, I'm not too confident Durin as a shooter, but he's also just, you You don't want him stretching the floor on offense. You want him around the basket to take advantage of his excellence as a rebounder. And he's been extremely strong as an offensive rebounder this season. So yeah. How do you play during with either of them? Like if Bagley can learn to shoot, you know, cool. That's uh, that Or If Wiseman can learn to shoot, you know, cool. That, that adds an option, but Again, even just again in that situation, you're not using them as, as, as interior scores. In that case, you're not using them as role men. In that in that case, there's just a certain amount of overlap. And but at this point, you can't play any of the three with the other two. I mean, the Pistons will because they have no other option this season. They're just they're going to do it. And you have Isaiah Stewart who can like theoretically play with them at this point, just because he can sort of shoot. And if he gets a shooting together, then Coley becomes more compatible with with with, with all three of them. But you bring Stewart into the picture as well. You've got four bigs to whom the Pistons all want to give minutes. Uh, and and how are you going to make that work? I mean, how are you going to give them all enough minutes to to, to give them the role and uh, just the, the time on the court to develop that you want out of the four of them? So that's a just a weird situation. You've now got a glut of bigs, and three of them can't shoot, and the fourth one can only sort of shoot. But you know, Pistons are committed to using him as a power forward this season. Uh, and I also think that. Isaiah Stewart ultimately his his primary position is going to be center. Now you ask, okay, maybe you play badly power forward. It's like, okay, sure, yeah. I think I think that's going to be his his primary position on offense, on um, both ends. If he's successful in the NBA, uh, there's going to be need to be a certain amount of development there as a shooter, um, and and just in, in terms of his off ball acuity in general. And if you're going to play him uh, with with Wiseman or, or certainly with Duran, I mean that's going to need to be there because Bagley is not going to be able to be the primary interior scorer. I mean that's going to have to be Duran, and uh, Bagley's going to have to be able to space the four. You know, you can cut to the basket for lobs, and he needs he finishes and whatnot. But he's going to need to. Bagley's going to need to diversify and change the way he plays to play with uh, uh, to play with Duran, like Wiseman, whatever. I'm just trying to a broken record here. It's going to be a weird thing navigating all of this. Uh, obviously, I, I don't think even the Pistons, even know, the front office would see that the three of them, well, you know, like all four of the the, the bigs on this uh, on this team at the moment are all going to be, you know, that that it's going to work out for all four of them. But it's just a it's just a weird situation. Uh, then that's definitely a consideration. Uh, I've seen some questions about Wiseman. You know, if he shoots, can he play power forward? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think he has that sort of mobility. Like he's he's definitely got very good mobility for. He's got very solid mobility. It's uh, you know for a center, uh, power forwards these days. It's a little bit, of, a little bit of a different story. Uh, it, it's different when you can, you know, and we don't, we don't know much about Wiseman's switch defense at this point. But uh, and I forgot to mention that, that that remains a question mark for him. It's a different story. Like you look with Isaiah Stewart between just playing switch defense on the perimeter and consistently defending power forwards on the perimeter. It, that's a very different thing. Like uh, like uh, Stewart who in his first two seasons was very much playing interior defense. And if he got switched onto somebody uh, and had to defend them from the perimeter on end, cool, but he was basically just playing interior. He, he was, he was the defensive anchor there uh, versus putting him out of, out of power forward where now he's got to chase people around and cover ground in the interior and, and so on and so forth. That's a different story. And I question if, if Wiseman is really suited to that, I don't think that just being a shooter would, would really enable him to play power forward. I think we're looking at him uh, being a long-term center and, that brings up another thing because Jalen Duran, of course, is the team's long-term center. You know, it's is almost certainly going to be a long-term center as well. Uh, I'd say with like a ninety-nine percent degree of uh, degree of confidence there. So it's like you're developing the two of them. I mean, I, I guess your hope is that, I guess your ideal situation is that they're that they're both really good and you get to trade one of them. It's like, all right, well, it's just kind of like a weird end game to have. Like those are your, you know, that that's your ideal situation is that they both do super well and then you need to get rid of one of them. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be the worst of outcomes. And finally, what would make this trade a success? Uh, well, I think the answer to that is obvious. Um, you know, Wiseman's a good player. Obviously, not what I'm looking for there. Uh, what's going to make this trade a success if Wiseman can get it together as a decision maker, especially on defense? Like, if if he if he is not like you have two options right now, or maybe maybe again, I don't think you're going to find much in between. Basically, just that what he's shown in the NBA so far on defense is just who he is, that he's just got basically terrible defensive acumen like Bagley. And that, that's that. Maybe he can improve a bit, but he's still going to be bad. Uh, and on offense, you know, does this guy just know where to be and, and what to do? That's an easier thing, but we don't even know that yet. So the success is we find that, uh, you know, that Wiseman, his uh, kind of struggles and decision-making on defense are the product of just rawness, and he can get it together there. and can become like, like a fairly strong defender on offense, Again, finding, finding your way is – I think he'll get it together there as, as, as a decision maker because uh, that's just a much – there's a much lower – they're much much less in the way of demands, particularly for a center. But uh, yeah, and then on offense, he becomes able to shoot and just is a strong interior scorer, and that just gives him uh, just some diversity that makes him a valuable offensive player. That, that's where your success is. And yeah, again, the, the best case scenario is that both he and Duren are very good, and you can trade one of them for real value. Um, because you know, if you find success with Wiseman and you find success with Duran, uh think they're both centers and you're gonna have trouble uh <laughs> you know, getting anywhere near enough value, you know, whether against salary or just in general. Um, you know, because you've got in that situation two very effective centers in the same team and yeah, you trade one of them for help elsewhere. Uh all right, just a final uh few subjects to cover again, based just on, on questions that I've seen, uh, Marvin Bagley himself. Has he been playing well lately? Uh, so Bagley had this, you know, in, in his two games back has, has been good, uh, against, uh, not very good teams and basically just, you know, creating, getting a lot of rebounds and, and doing scoring in the interior when he's given the ball. And it's like, that's all well and good. I uh, can't really participate in the offense in any other way. And he gets massacred on defense. So at this point, Bag needs to diversify his skill set on offense and move to power forward and not be defending the interior and not be the, the primary interior defender period because I don't think it's a situation uh, in which he is ever going to be anything but utterly awful uh now, why is he playing better lately? Is it a higher level of effort uh who knows? I'd hope not because that means he hasn't been playing it uh, at a proper level of effort to this stage um but yeah, again, what bag needs to do become just better able to contribute on offense in in more ways and uh become a decent defender or power forward also be played a power forward first and foremost but man does that guy need to learn to shoot in the offseason hamadou diallo scoring a lot of points lately is he playing well uh i'd say same sort of thing uh hamadou is is a genuinely strong scorer going downhill to the basket i mean there's there's no doubting that uh unfortunately he can't shoot which uh makes him he's a perimeter player unlike bagley uh, to, at this point again is being utilized as a center uh which, I mean, you watch how how, how defenses deal with, with Hamadou. They just sag off, uh, and he's got, like, 10 feet of space. Uh, you know, his... Uh, rather, there's, like, 10 feet of space between he and his defender, who's just has no need to guard him because he knows Hamadou is not going to shoot, and even if he does shoot, he's going to do a terrible job of it, and and therefore is just free to hang out in the interior and make life more difficult in terms of penetration for any other player for the business. Um Yeah, this is, like, kind of... It's it's just another one of these things where you where you look at a stat line and it, it's a lot better than it actually is. It, excuse me, it looks a lot better than it actually is, because just having him out there at all as a non four spacer, you know, who who cannot participate in three point offense, you know, who cannot space the four for his teammates and uh and and whom defenses are free to basically just ignore. That's a big cost to the offense, and players like that are. If you look in the postseason, you won't see a single player like that. I mean, he's he's unplayable in the postseason. So. Again, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe he gets kind of like an end of bench deal for next season. I doubt it. I doubt. Uh, I mean, he's very much in the edge of, ro- edge, edge of the rotation right now for this, one of the worst teams in the league. Will he stick around for that sort of role? Who knows? Please, Hamadou, learn to shoot. You can be a very effective NBA player, and I love watching you play, if, you know, for the most part. Well, do I love watching you play? Um, I love watching certain things about you out in the courts. we put it that way. And, uh, you know, Hamadou with the three-point shot. Very solid you know, very solid NBA score. You know, possibly, I would say, a solid starter for a good team. I've said that many times. I uh, said so the last two off seasons, you know, it would be great if he came back and didn't learn how to shoot. Either he isn't trying or he just doesn't have the touch or both. I'm not counting on it. And finally, at this point, uh, this is the third season in a row in which you're tanking. Uh, do, you, you know, do, do wins have any positive impact at this stage? Uh, again, we come back to this notion of a winning culture you know, and of, you know, teams can get better by winning. This team does not have enough talent to win in any substantive fashion. I know you could say, oh, wins would be good for player development. You know, and losing constantly, obviously, is is tough on players. Um, At the same time, I don't think that losing a lot, you know, given a positive environment in other ways, which the business clearly have is actually going to harm these players. And I don't think winning is just going to, you know, make a difference in terms of, oh, hey, I'm winning. I'm going to become a, this is going to motivate me to be a better player than than I would be otherwise. I don't think that's a consideration either. Winning culture is... A myth. It's a myth that Tom Gore has, uh immersed himself in for his first. What was it like? Um, eight and a half seasons with the team, where he said, "No, we're not rebuilding. All we need to do is start winning. You know, build a winning culture, make the playoffs, and then, you know, we'll become better as a result. You know, just we build that winning culture and we build this momentum, and and you know, and, and then we're going to become a good team. And that it doesn't work that way. It, the Pistons at no point like in during that period of you know 2011 to halfway through the 2019-2020 season at no point did they have even anything in the same universe of enough talent to actually compete in the NBA uh just not at all i mean you need to have a good culture obviously you know you want your players to be happy you want you want your players to be motivated uh you want everything to be going well on uh in that area and that's necessary to win a championship but the talent has to be there absolutely has to be there this team does not have anywhere near enough talent to actually win a substantive number a substantive number of games, um, and and the best way for this team to conceive, you know, to, to potentially add talent is through a high selection in the draft. And I know that there's a certain amount, probably, of, of jadedness I, I would imagine among some Pistons fans in that okay, well, we picked first overall two seasons ago. Uh, you know, you got Kate Cunningham. Uh, you know, you picked uh, number five with uh, you know with Jaden Ivey last season. He was a highly touted prospect. Of course, Kate Cunningham missed the vast majority of the season. Last season's team, uh, again, just didn't have enough talent either. I mean, there was not enough talent on that team. Uh, th- you know, they they did not have enough talent to win games. Uh, you know, to to win any significant number of games either, even without the the, the pretty poor injury, injury luck that that roster had too. So, yeah, I, I know it's been tough watching the Pistons for two and two thirds seasons now. Um, well, it's been more than that actually. Once you, when you you know when you count the the tank portion of the the of 2019, Um yeah, it's. Uh, I know that we all want to be rooting for a team, uh, rooting for this team to win. You know, rooting for a team that we want to win on a nightly basis. But at this point, it just again, we're at uh, and you know two thirds of the way through uh, another season in which the Pistons are um, are headed for for the high lottery. Uh, absolutely not headed for the playoffs. Needless to say, and uh, this is just the situation in which it makes sense for them to lose. There's very little. I mean, uh, to think about it, the Pistons could win half of their remaining games, and it's it's not going to really produce any benefit beyond feel good. I, I would, I don't think. I mean, I'd be happy to hear arguments as to why that would actually benefit the team in general, benefit player development or anything like that. I don't think that that's the case, and it could conceivably hurt the Pistons pretty badly in terms of lottery odds. And this is a, I mean, this this draft is largely just super strong in the top two, uh, but you know, you, you want to give yourself the best odds that you can. And it, I mean that's that that's what makes sense at this point of the season uh, for a, a team in a position that that this Pistons roster is. And also, I would like to note, just to remind, and uh, anyone or, or just um, excuse me, fill in anybody who isn't familiar with the odds system that uh, yes, it is true that the highest odds you can get after lottery reform, just thanks to the 76ers, at the first overall pick is fourteen percent, and that's the teams the, the the teams with the three best lottery odds have the same odds at, uh, at, at any of the top four pick slots. Uh, however, uh, once you go below, like basically the, the further down you are, the more you can fall. If you're the worst team in the league, the worst pick you can get is number five. If you are the second worst, you can you have a 20% chance of dropping to number six. And if you are the third worst, your chances of dropping to number six or number seven are 33% and so on and so forth. So sure, your odds at the number one overall pick don't increase, you know, regardless of if you are, uh, you know, number one, number two, number three in terms of uh, draft lottery odds. However, your chances of getting a worse pick, uh, you know, your chances you can drop further, I'll put it that way. So at the end of the day, it is still best to 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 be the 30th best team at the end of the league. If you are, if draft odds are your odd, you know, are your priority. Okay, so that'll be it for this episode, which actually ended up being about twice as long as I anticipated it would be uh either way it's going to be back in the groove of things so uh as always folks I want to thank you for listening and i will see you in the next episode